Hello, women of Every Woman's Grace. What a joy it is to get to study this passage right along with you. When we need God to give us instruction, encouragement, and perseverance, He gives it to us in His Word. A few weeks ago, we began the practical portion of the letter of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the Romans. Paul has taught us how to live out our theology and um, how that theology should create right relationships with God, with the world, with fellow believers, and with everyone. Last week, we considered the directives regarding our behavior in relation to civil authorities. This week, Paul continues his theme on how Christians are to behave in relation to people in general. This week goes beyond believers and family members. This is about our love for all people. And love is the key to all godly obedience because love fulfills God's law. The timeliness of this lecture is not lost on me. I have been deep into this passage since way before COVID-19 before we'd ever even heard of it. This message of loving one another, the way that Christ loves us, expecting his imminent return and how to prepare for the evil days ahead is God's providential grace on each one of our lives. We have the need to heed these verses. So we left off with Romans 13, verse 7, which says that we're to render to all that which is due to them. This week, Paul continues his theme of what Christians owe. So open your Bibles with me, please, to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, and I will read it. Owe no one anything except to love each other, For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know, the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're to pay what we owe. Paul begins by telling his audience that they're not to owe anything to anybody, right? But this is not a command or a mandate not to take out or to give a loan. We know this because scripture allows for loans elsewhere. The psalmist tells us that the righteous one is generous and gracious in his lending in Psalm 37. And Exodus twenty-two twenty-five 25 says, 
if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. What is forbidden for Christians is usury or making a large profit um, through exorbitant interest rates and you're getting rich off of the needs of others. What this passage is saying is that when you owe something to somebody, pay them back. Home loans, car loans, personal loans, college loans, pay them. We're to pay what we owe. However, there is a debt that we're commanded to owe and to keep owing. And that is to love one another. To whom is this debt owed? Well, Matthew twenty two forty seven tells us that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. So we owe a debt of love to the Lord Jesus Christ. John eight forty two says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I am from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. We owe love to believers. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We're to love unbelievers. In Matthew 5, 44, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It is a continual debt. The debt of love is the opposite of any other debt. This debt increases all the more as it's paid. The more one practices love, the greater the principle grows, which causes one to become more active in practicing the deeds of love. It's a circular, unending love. And what kind of love is this? It's agapeo or agape love. It's to love unconditionally and sacrificially. Just as God himself loves sinful man in John 3, 16. God gave his only son to save those who would believe. <clears throat> and it's also the way that the God loves his son. John 3.35 says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. This kind of love is made known only by the actions that it prompts within us. Jesus is the perfect example of agape love. Ephesians 5.2 says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. It's a godly love, so much richer than emotions or feelings. It begins with a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, generosity, and it therefore finds a way to do good to the objects of this love. John says it's a choice. Little children, let us not love in word or deed, but, or excuse me, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's 1 John 3.18. It's a love that sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. 
John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So how does this kind of love fulfill the law? And to what is Paul even referring when he says the law? Well, the law of the Lord is beautifully described in Psalm 119. The psalmist gives 10 different words to represent what we call the word of God or the law of the Lord. In verse 7, it says judgments. Verse 10, commandments. Verse 15, precepts and ways. Verse 16, statutes. Also in verse 16, the word. Verse 20, ordinances. 24, testimonies. Verse 43, the word of truth. And in verse 92, the law. Paul confirms that this is what he means immediately by citing the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be seen in two parts, essentially the love between God and man, which is the vertical relationship. It's the love, the, it's the love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength part. That's Deuteronomy 6, 5. It was commanded. And in Exodus 20, 20, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's also the love between man and man, which is the horizontal relationship. The command that Paul refers to in verse nine, you shall love your neighbor as yourself is this one. So what does it mean to love others as you love yourself? Well, the world may believe that this is a command to love yourself. First lie. This is a quote from Robert Morley. To fall in love with yourself is the first secret to happiness. But the truth is found in Psalm 90 verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Another lie. This is by Wayne Dyer. If you don't love yourself, nobody will. Not only that, you won't be any good at loving anyone else. Loving starts with the self. But the truth is found in 1 John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. And oh, how God loves us. Galatians 2:20 says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me." And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Ladies, don't believe the lies. The truth is we actually have no problem at all loving ourselves and looking out for our own best interests. This has been demonstrated across the world recently. We've all seen it. Ephesians 5.22, though, says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. We are being commanded to love others as much as we love ourselves, which is quite a lot. Paul goes on to point out ways that we break God's law and we don't love others. He starts with adultery. Well, the first thing to note is that if you're loving your neighbor or your husband as much as you love yourself, you're not going to commit adultery. But in Matthew 5, 27, Jesus said that if one even looks on a woman or a man 
to lust for him or her, they have committed adultery with that person in their heart. What's Jesus saying here? It's not simply the action, but it's the lust. It's the sin within us that is evil and condemns us. Then he moves to murder. Again, if we're loving our neighbor, we're not going to kill them. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty. Whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. We owe the kind of love that begins in our hearts and minds, and it works our, its way into our actions. Because love is the thread of gold that's woven into every relationship throughout all of our lives. Oh, but that isn't even possible. And that's precisely the point. We all need the grace of God. Paying this debt requires that you have the spirit of God controlling your life. Philippians 1.27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You don't have the Holy Spirit unless you believe in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 2.38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you wouldn't have a Savior without the grace of God. Romans 3.24 tells us we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God showed his grace to us because of his great love. John 3, 16, which we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the love that can never be repaid. And you and I owe a debt that we must pay we're obligated to God to pay it. This verb is in the present imperative, meaning it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It must be paid every single day in every relationship that we have from the time that we're saved until by his grace, Christ comes back again. We must love God and we must love one another. It's not a one and done. It is an ongoing command, present tense, and continues to be in the present tense. It's only by God's saving grace, which we call justification, that we're able to love in the sweetest possible way and to keep loving this way, which is sanctification, because we owe it until we're like the one who loves us so much, which is our glorification. These are the three parts to salvation. Psalm 119, which we talked about before, the psalmist also proclaims that God's law or his word is sweeter than honey and brings those who love it great peace, preventing them from stumbling. This is an amazing truth. Not only are we commanded to pay a debt, but under grace, we're enabled 
to pay that debt. God produces within us the very ability to do what under the law we could never do according to our own self-centered flesh. Now in the power of his spirit and under his grace, we're able to do what could never have been done before. God has given us the command to love and the ability to love. And now he's going to give us the incentive to love. It says in verse 11, and do this knowing the time. He says in verse 11, wake up. This is the first of three commands in this section. We immediately sense urgency. We need to wake up. What does it even mean to be asleep? You're in a state of inactivity. You're unaware of what's going on around you. You're kind of in a stupor. Ladies, we need to wake up from our inactivity and begin to use those gifts of the spirit that he gives us that we we learned about in Romans 12. We must be alert and conscious of what's going on all around us. The world is in a stupor but we're to be awake and we're to be alert. Paul's giving us a heads up. We are being given the message that dawn is coming. The king is coming to claim us and we'd better be prepared. We want to be ready. In recent days, we've witnessed people going crazy prepping for a coming virus, which they may or may not contract. These same people live without giving a thought to the fact that every human has already been infected with the worst virus of all, one which promises to bring death to all, and that virus is called sin. The coming of Jesus is a certainty, and he will bring great rewards to those who belong to him, but judgment and eternal death to those who don't. So wake up. It's time. The light of morning is coming quickly and salvation is nearer than when we first believed. When I was a teenager, our youth group occasionally welcomed the new members of our group with a kidnap breakfast. Arrangements would be made with the parents of the girls who would be kidnapped um, with instructions to unlock the front door and not to say anything to their daughter. At dawn, we would set out to retrieve our victims. It was always hilariously funny to see the girls who had been told and were expecting us. Their rooms were clean, they had on new PJs, and they never had curlers in their hair or Clearasil dots on their faces. They didn't have that. But on the other hand, those poor girls who didn't know would be completely off guard. They were caught unaware. Their rooms were messy. They had unmatched pajama bottoms and tops. And as the style of the day back then dictated, sometimes they had coffee can curlers on top of their heads to straighten their hair. So off we all marched to IHOP. And those who were prepared were not ashamed. But those who were not prepared, they were completely mortified. As teenagers, we thought this was great fun, um, but it would, it's not going to be so much fun when Christ 
comes to claim us and finds us unprepared. Thomas Schreiner says this, the time is near. Paul is conveying to us that a very real basis for ethics is that the end is imminent. While Paul may not have expected history to last another 2,000 plus years, neither did he teach that Jesus would return within his lifetime or even shortly thereafter. And ladies, we don't either. Jesus himself said, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. And that's in Matthew 24, verse 36. But his point is that the end is certainty and the possibility is that it could be soon. So believers should always be ready. We must behave as if Christ will return today. John Calvin said this, Christ keeps the minds of believers in a state of suspense until the last day. And J.C. Ryle said, uncertainty about the date of the Lord's return is calculated to keep believers in an attitude of constant expectation and to preserve them from despondency. It says that the night is almost gone. This is a time of moral and spiritual darkness, and it covers the whole present world. It's radically opposed to the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's an evil time. Galatians 1.4 tells us that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and our Father. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, but believers are to seek first the kingdom of God. It's a time without understanding. John 11.10 says, But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It's a time right before Christ returns to rule in Romans 13.12. Ephesians 5.15 and 16 tells us it's a time to be wise says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. It's a time to evangelize. Acts 1, 7 and 8 says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a time for us to realize that we are in God's plan for history and we have to know where we are in this plan. The next event is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And there are people who don't know the Lord The trumpet will sound and we will meet Jesus in the air. Then the next event is judgment. We should be holy. Christ's imminent return is an incentive for holy living. Titus 
2, 11 through 13 says it so well. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be patient. His coming is near, James 5 says. James tells us to be patient and establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We're to be prayerful because his coming is near. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Jesus is coming. We have to wake up to this fact. Paul told us that the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. It's closer right now today than it ever has been. It's over 2,000 years closer than when Paul wrote those words. Be prepared. In fact, the day of our salvation is near. The nighttime of this world's history is soon ending, and the daytime of God's kingdom is coming. Remember what we learned in Romans 8, 18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And 1 John 3, 2 says gives this assurance. It says, when we see him, we shall be like him. So be excited. This is our hope. And this hope should motivate us to holy living. 1 John 3, 3 says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And 1 Peter 1 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Until that day, we must prepare for the battle. First, we must put off. Um, you have to put off your PJs, your night clothes, the clothing of sin. Verse 12 says, the sinful deeds are the deeds of darkness. Believers are clothed in righteousness from the moment of salvation This is our position. It's the way that God sees us when the blood of Christ has paid for every evil deed. So the question is, why in the world would we put back our old dirty PJs when we have these beautiful, clean, white clothes to put on? This is a call to stop living as if the old man is still alive in you. Believers are new creations. So wake up, stop living sinful lives and get dressed. Be awake and prepare for the battle. It's a good battle, says Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12. The victory is already secured. And listen to 1 John 5.4 that says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Spurgeon said, like the Spartans, every Christian is born a warrior. It is her destiny to be assaulted and it is her duty to attack. So we have to throw off the old fleshly ways and we have to behave properly. We have to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not the flesh. Paul then gives several ways to know that we're not under the Spirit's control, 
but we are under the control of our flesh. The first one he mentions is carousing and drunkenness. These are wild parties and getting drunk, drinking parties. The second one is sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Simply put, any sexual relations outside of the confines of marriage between a man and a woman and living in any way you want without shame, that is sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Then he talks about strife and jealousy, fighting, contending with one another, being at odds with people and being envious and resentful of other people. He says, wake up, stop behaving like those in the darkness behave. Throw off these behaviors because they all violate God's agape love. We know it's a battle, don't we? Paul agrees with us because in Romans 7, 21, he said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. What he's saying is that our minds are to be set on Christ, but sin is still in our flesh. And these two are constantly at war with each other. We can't fight this battle without the proper clothing. Our PJs are not sufficient. Just as we got our sinful clothing from Adam, we receive our righteous clothing from Christ. Christ clothes us in pure white robes of righteousness. We women really love weddings, at least I do. The celebration, the love, the feasting, and that gorgeous white gown. Jesus used this as an illustration in Matthew 22. We have a picture of a marriage feast that God is giving for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. People are invited to come to this marriage feast and the king comes in to see the guests who are there. And he sees a man in verse 11. And this man does not have on the proper wedding clothes. He's not properly dressed for the wedding. And the father says to him, fellow, how did you come here? Not having a wedding garment. And he had nothing to say, but he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, throw him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is this saying? It's saying that there are no wedding crashers in heaven. You cannot get there unless you have the garment. Excuse me. What is this saying? It's saying that there are no wedding crashers in heaven. You cannot get in unless you have the garment. And what's the garment? It's righteousness. That's what Isaiah 61, 10 said. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Jesus alone gives his bride, the church, the pure white robes of righteousness for the wedding feast. You put on his holiness, you put on his nature, and God sees you as righteous in Christ Jesus. Every single member of God's kingdom is seen as righteous from the moment of salvation. 
Our position before God is that we are righteous. He sees us just as he sees his son. But our practice is that as long as we live in these fleshly bodies, we must fight the sin. We must fight that part of our flesh. And we have to do it until our bridegroom comes. We must prepare for him. Or in another analogy, we must fight on like a soldier being readied for battle. We're to put on in verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Our pastor, John MacArthur says that we should all circle this verse in our Bibles because it is sanctification in the life of every believer. Spiritual growth or sanctification is becoming what you already are in Christ. It is the lifelong process of killing the sin in our flesh. But Jesus is our armor. Several years ago, my husband and I were able to visit the Tower of London. And I remember being impressed with all the different armor that was displayed there. They were so thick and heavy made to protect as much of the body as they possibly could. It was a wonder any of these warriors could even move. Um, Some of them were so thick and cumbersome. The impenetrable design and the metals used were created to keep them safe from anything that came at them. That's what armor is supposed to do. It's made for warfare and it's designed to protect the one who wears it. The spirit whom dwells in every Christian works through our new nature in Christ, and he gives us everything we need to fight the darkness of sin and also everything we need to put on the armor of light. God's own light provides the divine protection that we need to protect us in our battle with the darkness of sin, with Satan, the ruler of darkness. Ladies, we may be prone to sin, but we're never obligated to sin. But we need help, and God has provided it. In Ephesians 6, he describes the armor of God. It is the girdle of truth. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the preparation of the gospel. It's the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. This whole armor of God is a picture of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 6.13 tells us that the whole armor is required because Christ is truth. John 14.6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake, he made himself to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our salvation. Luke 2.30 says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. He is the word of God. John 1.1, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. And Ephesians 6.11 says, but put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But when we don't 
put on our armor, the whole armor, we're making a way for sin to find that opening. And those fiery darts of Satan's will penetrate. We're providing for sin to creep into our lives. So we have to put on our armor every single day. And we are to make no provision for sin. When I was a teenager, I hiked to the top of Mount Whitney. In the weeks and days prior to this hike, I got into better shape, obviously, and I put much thought into gathering and storing my provisions for my adventure. And that's the very idea here. I tucked away in my backpack the things that I knew were going to be needed for that hike. I provided what I needed for that steep trail ahead. But many of us provide for ourselves that which is needed to sin. We're not to provide for those things that will make us vulnerable to our weakness to sin. Psalm 36, 4 says, he devises mischief upon his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. How many struggle with addiction yet keep that stash of alcohol hidden in the back of the cupboard? Who among us is tempted by sexual sin yet make plans to be alone with that guy we're not married to? When have we made plans to hang out with that group of friends whom we know drag us into sin right along with them? Who recently has spent hours listening to news reports of dire predictions that are associated with this current situation, even though you know that this causes fear, anxiety, and faithlessness to rise up in your heart. There is no place for this for Christians. We're not to make any provision for our human fleshly desires, but instead put on that which God has provided for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're putting on the capacity to love like him, to walk with him, to be righteous like Jesus, to have the necessary faith to be saved by him. And what infinite capacity of all of these he offers to us. Great is thy faithfulness. They are new every morning. Ladies, they never run out and they never cease. From Lamentations 3.22, one of my favorites. Those who are in Christ anxiously await his promised return. So we must stop living as if we're unaware of the evil around us and the commands to live righteously in this dark world. They say it's darkest just before the dawn, and it's pretty dark in the world right now. So throw off your sinful ways, put on your armor, and get to work behaving like Christ. What will Jesus say to you when he returns? Well done, good and faithful servant. That should be the cry and the prayer of every single believer. If that's your prayer, wake up, put off sin, and put on Christ. Start today because even the smallest light is seen in the darkest night. I want to close 
with this prayer that was written by our pastor, John MacArthur. So bow your heads as I read this prayer. Oh, to be like thee, dear Jesus, my plea, just to know thou art formed fully in me. On with thy beauty, Lord, off with my sin, fixed on thy glory, thy likeness to win. Oh, to be like thee, thine image display. This is the Spirit's work day after day. Glory to glory, transformed by his grace, till in thy presence I stand face to face. Oh, to be like thee, thou lover of men, gracious and gentle, compassionate friend. Merciful Savior, such kindness and care are only mine when thy likeness I share. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, for this I live, to this I'll die. It's my hope, my prayer, my cry. Amen.